You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Our passage for this morning's sermon is Acts 23, verses 31, all the way to 24, verse 27. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded them to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tortulus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tortulus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. 
And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Go ahead, you may be seated. Um, I'd like to pray just one more time. Dear Father, we thank you that you are God, that you have given us your word, and Lord, we thank you that your word ultimately testifies to Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that as we uh, open and examine your word this morning, that uh, you would just... Um, Open our hearts and our ears to, to your word. Father, I pray that everything that I say would be true, that it would be an accurate reflection of what you've revealed. And Father, I pray that your church this morning would be built up. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we press on in the book of Acts, we are nearing the conclusion of the book. And Acts is made up of an amazing array of events I mean, think about the places that are mentioned. Think about the number of people that are mentioned. It it's almost has a dizzying effect as, as, as you see Paul and the apostles traveling around the entire Mediterranean world. And it can be difficult to keep track of where Paul has been and where he's going. And we also think about the conflict and the hostility towards Christians and particularly the apostle Paul. Paul made reference to the trials that he faced as he was advancing the message of Christ throughout the Mediterranean. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 through 28, where Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is indeed maybe a, a summary of Paul's experience that we see throughout the book of Acts. But we also see that in spite of the suffering, in spite of the hostility faced by Paul and other Christians, the church continues to advance. And this is one of the main purposes of the book of Acts. Christ's church will advance. Christ's kingdom will be established. And the reason for this is because Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has risen victoriously from the grave, and though he has ascended to heaven, he is the ruling and reigning Lord whose purposes cannot be thwarted. And so if we were going to sum up a proposition for, for what is the book of Acts all about, well, it's about Jesus, the risen messianic king who is establishing his kingdom throughout the earth. And that, 
my friends, is the most important thing for us to remember this morning. Oftentimes when we come to the book of Acts, we, we come with a, a wrong set of expectations. We, we come using the book of Acts for purposes that it was not meant for. There is a tendency sometimes for people to gravitate to the book of Acts because of all the cool stuff that's happening there, right? So we often want to know how to be a good Christian. We want to know how to be a, a good church. And so we go to the book of Acts for examples. But the book of Acts is not a church planting manual. It is not a primer on how to do evangelism, even though we may learn some really wonderful and helpful things about evangelism. It is not an instruction manual for how to do community groups, even though we might find some, some wonderful things about fellowship and hospitality. No, there's, there's wonderful things that are in the book of Acts, but what is the book of Acts primarily about? No, the book of Acts, first and foremost, is narrative. That means it's telling us something that happened in history. Acts continues to unfold the redemptive historical plan of God to save a people for himself. And this is important for us to recognize this morning. Because the book of Acts, first and foremost, is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. The book of Acts is fundamentally concerned with describing what has happened because what has happened in history changes everything. Many of you have heard the expression, he can't see the, the forest for the trees. You've heard that expression? Someone can't see the forest for the trees? It's an expression that means that one is so focused on the details of something that he can't see the whole in view. You're so focused on the details that you can't see the whole picture. And I want us to see the big picture of Acts this morning before we narrow in and, and look specifically at Acts 23 and 24. And so uh, if you'll track with me for just a moment, I want us to review a little bit of the structure of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is structured with a theme of the kingdom of God. If we go to some of the very first verses of the book of Acts, Acts 1, verse 3, you don't have to turn there, but Acts 1, verse 3 says this, He, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He presents himself alive and then he speaks about the kingdom of God. When we go to the very end of the book, the last two verses of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 30 and 31, reads this way. He, that is Paul, lived there in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke structures the book of Acts with the kingdom of God as the two bookends, if you will. The two bookends that hold all of the book of Acts together. It's ultimately about the kingdom of God as it advances throughout the world. 
Now, the technical term for, for structuring something this way by, by having a, a phrase that begins a section and a phrase that ends a section is called an inclusio, but you can think about it this way. It's like a, a, the, the two buns of a big, juicy sandwich. All right? Now, now what are the purpose of, a, of buns or, or the two pieces of bread in your sandwich? Right? It, it, especially if you've got a lot on your sandwich, the, the buns hold everything together, right? You can't effectively eat the sandwich. You can't be nourished by it. You can't digest it without the two buns that hold everything together. That's what helps you eat it. That's what helps you digest it. And, and, and this is a structural feature that, that is often used throughout the Bible. We have this, these two buns of the sandwich that, that hold the meat of the sandwich together. Now, what's the meat of the sandwich? Well, it's about the kingdom of God. And namely, it's about the kingdom of God as the kingdom advances from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we see that programmatically laid out for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, where Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. From this passage, I want us to see, here's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about the kingdom of God. Why, why is the kingdom of God advancing? It's because Jesus is alive. He's presented himself as the, the risen and ruling king. He is still ruling and reigning. Though he has ascended, he has now commissioned his apostles to take the message of Jesus first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. You know, if you look at your Bible, if you look at the title of the book of Acts, our, our Bibles, in some ways, I, I want to be careful about saying this, but, but the title for the book of Acts is somewhat misleading. It says, typically, the Acts of the Apostles, right? But I, I want to argue, I think other scholars have, have persuasively made the argument that, that the book of Acts is really not about the Apostles, it's really about the risen Lord Jesus reigning from heaven. And yes, he's establishing his kingdom through his apostles. But the main character, the main actor of the story of Acts is the risen Lord Jesus himself. And we see this, right? Because, because as, as, as the gospel is advancing, Saul, who we later know as Paul, is confronted on the road to Damascus by whom? By the living reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul himself is, is, is commissioned to take the gospel, to be an instrument, to take the gospel to the nations. And so we see this uh, when Ananias is afraid to go and, and lay hands on Paul and pray for him. Jesus speaks to Ananias about Paul, and he says, But the Lord said to him, Go! For he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So you see, you see the big picture of what's happening in Acts? Where the gospel of, of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is being taken from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which will ultimately end in Rome. That's where we're going. And, and God's plan cannot be thwarted. 
That's where we come to in our, in our text this morning, in Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 11. Acts chapter 23, verse 11, if you would go there with me. We ended last week on this verse. But it says, The following night the, lo- the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So, as we set up our passage this morning for Acts chapter 23 and chapter 24, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see an evil plot against Paul. An evil plot against Paul. The second thing we're going to see is Paul on trial. Paul on trial. And finally, we're going to see a judgment deferred. A judgment deferred. So point one is an evil plot against Paul. Point two, Paul on trial. And finally, a judgment deferred. So first, we see a plot against Paul. Look with me at Acts chapter 23, verse 12 through 15. It says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. The first thing that we see is is there's a lot of angry people that really want Paul dead. This is, this is not uh, a new thing, as, as we saw Paul's summary statement in, uh, at the beginning of, of this message as, as he reflects in the letter to the Corinthians about all the trials and persecution that he endured. But this also represents a much bigger reality. The, the bigger reality is this, that sinful humanity is in rebellion against King Jesus and seeks to persecute Christ and his followers. Think about this for, for a moment. There, there, people disagree about lots of different things all the time. But how often is it that, that someone is so angry that, that they are willing to, to bind themselves by an oath to see someone murdered and dead? This is, this is, this is right where our text begins. And, and this kind of scenario, let me ask you this question. This, this may kind of seem alarming to us in one sense, but, but, but should we be alarmed by the thought that sinful, wicked men want to persecute Christians and those who follow Christ? I think the Bible tells us that that, that should not be alarming. That, that's actually the norm. Persecution is the norm in a fallen world. Jesus stated clearly, clearly during his ministry on earth that his disciples would be treated in the same manner of hostility in which Jesus was treated. We see in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, a disciple is not greater than his teacher. In John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus spoke to his, his disciples and said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You know, Jesus indeed said that the norm for the life of, of, of a Christ follower would be persecution. But, but this pattern of, of, 
hostility is laid out for us clearly in the Old Testament. Opposition to God's rule and reign didn't begin with Jesus, but began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And when that rebellion settled into the DNA of humanity, that that rebellion became the default response to God from that time forward. And we see that captured in a psalm like Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, ultimately, we know that, excuse me, ultimately, we know that this psalm points forward to Jesus. But already in the Old Testament, we see this clear pattern of hostility towards God and his people. But even Jesus stated that his disciples would be treated in the same way that he was treated. There's been a plot against Paul. They are seeking to put him to death. And so what's going to happen to Paul? Is is the evil plot against Paul going to succeed? No, the answer is no. And, And this is true for the specific scenario that we're talking about with the Apostle Paul, but it's also worth realizing as we, as we think about having this, this big picture flyover of what's happening in redemptive history, what's the purpose of the book of Acts? Well, we need to know that evil plots against God and against his followers, against Christ's followers, will not ultimately succeed. Now, we say this knowing that we are never promised that we will be free from suffering or trials. But friends, one thing that you must know is that evil plans of Satan and the evil plans of wicked men will not ultimately be successful. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed by the trials, maybe the persecution or the grief that we are experiencing in this fallen world that we cannot see the forest or the trees. We're so focused on what we're going through that we can't see what God is doing. I was recently reminded by a colleague in a staff meeting that we are so prone to think of ourselves as the main actor in our story rather than seeing that we are a supporting actor in God's story of redemption. And this is important for us to realize because we don't often know why we suffer, why we receive persecution, why we are slandered. And here's the real kicker. We may never know this side of glory. But the most important thing for us to know is that Jesus is ruling and reigning. And if we are united to him by faith, then God has promised that he is working all things together for our good. We see that certainly in Romans chapter 8, but even in the Psalm Psalm chapter 2, what we already began, notice how Psalm 2 begins or continues in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, friends, regardless of the trials, the suffering, or the persecution that believers may experience in this life, the book of Acts, indeed this passage, tells us that we need to be reminded that the plots of Satan, the plots of wicked men, will not ultimately be successful. 
And we see that, that God delivers Paul. In Acts 23, beginning in verse 16, we read that, Now the son of Saul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called on one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. The tribune goes on. He... he, um, immediately uh, gets a, a, a group of soldiers, not, not just a small company, but a total of 470 soldiers to give Paul a, a military escort out of uh, the city and get him to uh, Caesarea where he could be safely guarded and so that this plot would, would not be successful. So he goes to Caesarea approximately 40 miles away and there he was delivered to Felix. Friends, as we as we think about the evil plot against Paul, we need to be reminded that the, that the, the risen King Jesus is ruling and reigning, that, that no plot against him can ultimately be successful because Christ has already crushed Satan under his feet when he rose from the dead. And, and Paul is going to be delivered because God has promised that Paul will be delivered. And so if there's anything that we could take away from this, We need to recognize because God is sovereign, because Jesus is risen and reigning with all authority, we should not be afraid or despair in the midst of persecution or trials. Christ's resurrection from the dead ensures that the schemes of Satan and wicked men have already been crushed beneath his feet. Even if suffering and persecution are experienced by Christ's followers, we can be confident that God will work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the first thing that we see is, is an evil plot against Paul, but, but our text progresses to an actual trial, or at least part of a trial. And we see that unfold in Acts chapter 24. So in Acts chapter 24, four, verse 1, we begin, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we see... We seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So the first thing that we see in this passage is we see the prosecution, if you will. The accusations. Those who, uh, members of the Sanhedrin, the the high priest, uh, they they traveled from Jerusalem to, to bring their accusations against Paul. 
These members um, came to bring accusations, and their, their accusations are decidedly false. Now, if you remember, Paul had purified himself according to the law of Moses and was bringing his offering with four other Jewish men in the temple. They were completing their vows. And the whole reason that Paul was doing this was to demonstrate to the Jews in Jerusalem that his teaching and his preaching was not in opposition to the law, but rather that it was, it was in, in complete harmony with the law. The teachings of, of, of Paul and the teachings of Jesus are, are, are really consistent with what the Jews have always believed. So Paul is submitting himself to the law in order to demonstrate to the Jews that he's, he's, uh, he's not seeking to overthrow their customs or their laws. Uh, Paul is accused of stirring up riots, though. This is ironic because in almost every case, when we read in Acts, almost every case, it was angry Jews who stirred up the people when Paul preached from city to city. These accusers, they accused Paul that he was um, the ringleader for the sect of the Nazarenes. And they do this perhaps to make a case against Paul that he was leading some form of political dissension against Rome. And finally, they make the claim that Paul was defiling the temple, which, of course, he did not do. Jason Redberg, in a couple of past sermons, uh, mentioned that it's, it's remarkable how similar the experience of the Apostle Paul is to Jesus. So in the same way that, that Jesus is on trial, Paul is kind of following in the footsteps of, of Jesus. What was the main charge against Jesus? Well, it, was, it had to do with him uh, tearing down the temple and, and building it up again in three days. What's the main accusation against Paul? It's that he's profaned the temple. And so we see uh, there's, there's a parallel between Paul's experience and that of Christ. Well, the next thing we see is, is, is Paul's defense. Paul boldly denies the false charges, the false accusations. In verse 12 and 13, he says, And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Paul is not a, afraid. He's, he's not backing down. He's, he's clearly giving a defense according to the facts. And then Paul takes the opportunity to explain a little bit more about his faith. Paul explains that his faith is, cons is the consistent outworking of the Old Testament scriptures. I want you to see that in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 24. Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. You see what Paul is saying? He's not being polemical, but rather proceeds persuasively to explain that to be a Christian, that, that to be a follower of Jesus, is simply to believe the law and the prophets. If you truly understand the law and the prophets, it will lead you to accepting Christ as the risen Messiah. To be a Christian, then, is simply to believe the Scriptures and to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only does, does Paul uh, explain that his faith is a natural outworking of the Scriptures, but he also proclaims the truth with a clear conscience. Notice what he says in uh, 
verse 15, Paul states these men, his accusers, presumably many of them are Pharisees, agree with him that the scriptures teach there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And Paul has been consistent in his own faith and has labored to have a clear conscience before God and man. Paul has not sought to be devious or self-serving or self-protecting, but Paul has maintained throughout his life, both in his public teaching and preaching and also in his private life, a clear conscience before God and men. Paul has nothing to fear from either God or man because his conscience is held captive to the word of God. And so Paul uh, makes the claim. He says that uh, he always uh, makes effort to, to have a clear conscience. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of, of both the just and the unjust. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. But what's the real reason that Paul is on trial? What's the real reason? Well, we, we see that, that Paul has alluded to this already, but finally, as he sums up his defense, we see this in verse 20 and 21. Paul says, Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. As Paul concludes his remarks, he draws attention to the real issue at play. The real issue is that Paul is hated. His life has been in danger. There have been evil plots against his life for one primary reason. Paul's belief in the resurrection of the dead. Now, in this passage, Paul is referring first and foremost, to the general resurrection of the dead. He, he's, he's not spoken about uh, the resurrection of Jesus in, in his defense. He's, he's talking generically about uh, what the scriptures teach about the resurrection. This is significant because it was well known that there were two main factions within Judaism. Within Judaism, there were the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection they believed in an afterlife. They believed in angelic beings. And then there were the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And, and, and together, the Pharisees and the Sadduc Sadducees represented uh, the two dominant uh, ways of thinking in, in Judaism. And, and the Sanhedrin, which is the governing council, uh, still under the authority of the Roman government, was composed of both Pharisees, who believe in the resurrection, and Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul brings this up before Felix in order to demonstrate that he has done nothing by which he should be condemned under Roman law or even Jewish law. In essence, Paul simply states that his faith and his position, his belief in the resurrection, falls perfectly within the normal bounds of Jewish faith. If you will recall, Paul, when he spoke to the crowd, he even claimed, he, he identified which, which party he belonged to. He said in, in Acts 23, verse 6, he said, I am a Pharisee and a son of the Pharisees. And so here's the genius of his defense. Paul is telling Felix, he's, he's basically saying, if to be a Pharisee was a crime, then half of the Jews, half of the Sanhedrin must also be guilty. If, if that's the big accusation against me, then half of these guys are guilty. 
And Paul was prudent in his defense, as one scholar states. If the Jews speak the truth, they must admit that they had no case against him except theological differences, which in the eyes of Felix would be none at all. This was always Paul's position. So, so Paul makes his defense. It's, it's pretty clear at this point. The, the accusation doesn't really have a clear case against him. And, and Paul has effectively just kind of said, hey, this is really just a theological matter that, that really has, has no bearing on, uh, on my condemnation. But let's think about this for just a minute. While his defense is prudent and accurate, it also does not explain why Paul is hated by both Pharisees and Sadducees. You think about that? It does not explain ultimately why they hated him so much that they wanted to put him to death. Somehow the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, can get along. They can work together on a council. And nobody's dying. Nobody's getting murdered on the council. But when Paul comes along and he declares that he believes in the resurrection of the dead, everybody is angry. They want him dead. Why? Because the real reason that Paul was hated was not just because he believed in the general resurrection, but because he believed that Jesus is the resurrection. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. As Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you see, when you get specific, when you get exclusive, that's when persecution comes. That's when hatred comes. You see, many of us, we, 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 we talk about our, our faith, right? And, and, and if, if, you're, if you're in the workplace and you tell people that you believe in a loving God, I guarantee you nobody's going to get angry with you. Everybody believes that if there is a God, he must be loving, right? But it's when you get more specific. It's when you get more exclusive. It's, it's, it's only when you explain that God is good and holy and just, and that in order for him to exercise love, he must by necessity also be a God that hates sin and injustice and that his wrath is kindled towards rebels and sinners. When you preach a God of love that way, now people are angry with you. But you know what? When you preach the God of love that way, now you have an opportunity to preach salvation. They, they, can, they can be saved from the wrath of God. They can know the love of God when you get specific, when you get exclusive. So the real reason why Paul is, is on trial, yes, he's prudent. He's making a good defense. He's, a, he's, he's skilled in the law. He knows how to defend himself in a court of law. But the real issue is, is Paul is preaching there's no other way to be saved except for faith in Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life. Just as it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. John 3, 36 goes on to say, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what are some takeaways from, from this section that we've looked at? Well, because Jesus has risen from the dead, and is ruling and reigning, every believer should live prudently. We should live wisely, seeking to have a clear conscience before God and man, ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, a hope that is reasonable, right? As you see Paul's defense, it was reasonable, grounded in the scriptures, having a life and testimony that is above reproach. 
And we can do this because we know that God is sovereign. That regardless of whatever plot or accusation may be laid before us, we know that we have the victory in Christ. So we've seen a plot against Paul. We've seen Paul on trial. Finally, we see a judgment deferred. So how does this unfold? What's the outcome of the trial? Well, Felix delivers kind of a a judgment that's not really a judgment. Um, We'll continue reading in in verse 22 of chapter uh, 24. It says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 24, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So what's the outcome? Well, Felix just holds Paul in prison. And and he just delays judgment. He delays doing anything. Because why? Because Felix is a politician. And that's what politicians do, right? They're good at at, at delay. They're good at, at looking out for their own interests. And that's exactly what what Festus is doing. He's just buying his time. And yet, at the same time, Felix is also curious. He's curious about this Apostle Paul. Felix is intrigued by Paul and delays pronouncing a judgment. So there's, he's really just saying, hey, I'm just, I'm just going to put off making an actual judgment or an actual verdict. And then he and his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, They want to come and hear Paul. Now, this is interesting. Um, Drusilla, his wife, uh, is mentioned, and I think it's interesting because Drusilla is actually the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. The same Herod who had all the baby boys slaughtered in Bethlehem, that Herod, uh, that's her great-grandfather. And she's also related to the the same Herod and Herodias that we find in uh, Mark chapter 6, where uh, John the Baptist was in prison, and uh, they, they wanted to hear John the Baptist because they were curious about this guy. And I think, I think Luke includes this story because he wants us to remember what happened to John the Baptist. He wants us to, to, to be reminded of that, that this is a, uh, a similar scene that's unfolding. And just like Herodias and uh, Herod had, had committed all kinds of sins, so Felix and Drusilla are also... Uh, their marriage was, was wrought out of scandal. But Felix's delayed judgment provides Paul an opportunity, an opportunity to share the gospel with Felix and Drusilla. And while we don't get a detailed transcript of their conversation, it's clear that Paul testified to the identity of Jesus, probably that he's, he's alive, that he's the risen king, the promised Messiah. He, he speaks about self-control, the need for us to live self-controlled and holy lives, Because King Jesus is ruling and reigning. And finally, that there's a coming judgment. 
there's a coming judgment. A judgment that, that Drusilla and Felix will also be subject to. And so here, here's the irony. As, as, as Felix has delayed or deferred a judgment against Paul, Paul reminds Felix that Christ, the risen king, has deferred a judgment against Felix. And that there is time yet, if he would repent and believe in Jesus, that he could escape the wrath of God. And that reminds us also that there is a deferred judgment for us. The fact that Christ has not yet come is first and foremost a a demonstration of the mercy of God. It's a demonstration of the mercy of God because because we have time. We have time to submit ourselves to the lordship of the ruling and reigning King Jesus. We too should be alarmed that, that Jesus is coming again in judgment. He is the sovereign king who will come to bring judgment upon every sinner that has not repented and trusted in Jesus. Even as Paul has remi- reminded us that there will be a resurrection. All of this hinges on the doctrine of the resurrection. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And the reason for that is because King Jesus himself has risen from the dead. He is ruling and reigning. And so all of us have sinned before God. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity and to experience his eternal wrath for our own rebellion against him. But Paul's words in Romans chapter 3 are so sweet. They are so sweet. They provide such comfort. How do we escape the wrath to come? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See that we serve a good God. We serve a merciful God who is deferring judgment. And he's actually poured out judgment on Christ, his son, so that you and I can escape the righteous condemnation that we deserve. It's sad to say that Felix and Drusilla did not heed this word of Paul. They did not repent and believe. They were given many opportunities. Paul shared the gospel with them often, but at the end of the day, uh, Felix was more concerned about his own rule, his own reign. He, he wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he left Paul in prison. And that's where, that's where our, our passage ends, as Paul is in prison for two years. Paul is left in prison. And, and, and you think about how ineffective his ministry is. I mean, we, we're talking about a, a phenomenal preacher. He would be so well used if he was outside, but, but in God's sovereignty, he's in prison for two years. Now, some of you, you may be in a similar place this morning. You may look at your life, your circumstances, and you may be thinking, I'm, I'm in a hole. I, I don't know how long I'm going to be in this place of darkness. You're living in the midst of a hope deferred, whatever that may be. And you may be wondering, have I been abandoned? Has God forgotten about me in the midst of my own suffering? Because it doesn't look 
very good. The prospects don't look very good. And as we end our, 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 our passage, nothing has been resolved. It seems that Paul is now wasting a lot of time and energy under Roman arrest. And if this is all we see, if this is where we end, and if this is all that we see, then it leads us to a place of disappointment, a place of frustration. It leads us to a place of hopelessness. But remember what we said. We said sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. And, and you see, if we just focus on, on, on this particular situation, we, we forget what's happening in the book of Acts. Jesus is alive. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's promised Paul where Paul is going to go. He's going to get there in, in Christ's perfect timing. And one day, Paul is going to stand in, in, in Rome in front of Caesar, and, and he's going to proclaim the gospel. And friends, this symbolically demonstrates the reality that, that the gospel will advance. Christ's kingdom will advance to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And also reminds us that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. And we're even going to commemorate that here in just a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper because one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper is to remind ourselves that King Jesus is ruling and reigning and we're going to take this meal until he comes back for us. So friends, as, as, we, as we wrap up this morning, what do we take away from this? Because Jesus is the resurrected king who is coming again to judge the world, we should live lives of faith in Jesus. Self-controlled, full of hope and expectation. In this, we recognize that God is gracious in delaying that final judgment so that each person might receive God's mercy, repent of his sin, and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, there, there, there may be many of you here this morning You've never submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the fact that you're here this morning, the fact that God's wrath has not come is, is, is a testimony of God's grace to you and his offer of salvation that if you would repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you can have confidence that you'll spend eternity with him and that regardless of what your trials are, uh, God will carry you through. And for those of you that are believers, Again, we're, we're so self-focused. This morning, I hope that you get a big picture of what God is doing in redemptive history, what he's done, what he's already accomplished as a means of guaranteeing what he's going to do in the future. And friend, if that doesn't encourage you, if that doesn't give you hope for this week, I don't know what will. Let us pray.